chapter 1, reading in verse number 1. The former treatise, treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And that's our reading. So we're coming to this uh, large book. Um, the books that Luke wrote in the New Testament are some of the biggest books in our New Testament. And as you come to this book, it's been often referred to, and probably the title in your Bible will be The Acts of the Apostles. And I think it would be more accurate to say that this is the record of the ongoing words and works of the Lord Jesus through his apostles, empowered by the Holy Spirit, which isn't really a catchy title to put above a, a book, but that is actually what this book is all about. And so you have the ongoing words and works of the Lord Jesus after he had died, risen, and then gone back to heaven. And these are carried out on earth uh, under the power of the Holy Spirit and through his apostles, his disciples uh, on, on earth. And so it's written by Luke, um, he also obviously wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he was a Greek, he was highly educated, evidently he was also a medical doctor, and the language that he writes his uh, Gospel and this book in, the original Greek language is actually the most sophisticated of the Greek in our New Testament. And so there is a sophisticated idea behind the language um, and also the education, educational background that this man had. I said that these are big books. Actually, if you do a word count, the Gospel of Luke, by word count, is the longest book in the New Testament. And the second longest book by word count in the New Testament is the Acts of the Apostles. And so Luke wrote big books. And maybe that's because he was a doctor, I don't know. But there he is. And he wrote around about, the historians tell us, probably about AD 63 or 64, 
And we know that during that period of time that the church was under tremendous persecution and Nero was uh, burning Rome and then he was burning the Christians and blaming them for the burning of Rome. And the Gospel of Luke and the book of the Acts of the Apostles were written, so historians tell us, round about that time. And when you think about the way that these two books dovetail together, they join together, then the Gospel of Luke, there is an overlap between the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. When you read the end of Luke, there is that overlap. Luke's Gospel begins speaking in very much a similar way to the Acts of the Apostles. It's almost like part one and part two. And he writes to the same person uh, in both, and it's a development of what he's saying. And so, for example, Luke chapter 1 says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed amongst us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent it is, Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of these things wherein thou hast been instructed. And so he says, I'm going to write to you this book that we call the Gospel of Luke. It's a confirmation of all the facts that have been ascertained and are surely believed amongst us about the life and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you come to the Acts of the Apostle and he refers to that in the first verse. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And so he links the two together. And he says, I've already written to you, and now I'm going to write to you about the development of what the Lord Jesus began to do and to teach, as recorded in his gospel, and now continues to do and to teach through his apostles, even though he's ascended and gone back to heaven. Now, Theophilus, we don't know much about. The name means someone who is precious or dear to God, and again, evidently a man of education, perhaps a man of rank. Uh, Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus in his gospel, which was a title given to Roman officials. For example, in the book of Acts, Paul addresses Felix and Festus, Roman governors, by that title. And I don't know why, we don't really have the information as to why this was being written, whether Theophilus had uh, commissioned Luke to do it, and he was writing and providing this account to this person of status within the Roman Empire. But there's an overlap, as I mentioned. So at the end of Luke's Gospel, you have the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, you have his ascension. And now, when you come into Acts, you've got the message being spread, as we know. So you have got the spread of the Gospel and the beginning of the church and the church age, and that's the big picture. Someone put it this way, It's the story of the birth and the development of the church, but it must be read in this way. Imagine you're looking at a photo album of your own life. So your mum gets the photo album out of you. And here's a picture of little baby Stephen. And here's a picture of me when I'm five. Here's a picture of me when I'm 16. Here's a picture of me when I'm 30. I don't know if you look at photo albums nowadays because who takes photos and puts them in an album? But we used to do that. And you look at these albums and it's like snapshots of the person, but it's different. The person looks different at two and five and six and 16 and 30 
and 50. There's a development of that individual, but it's still the same individual. But they look different as they grow and develop into maturity. That really is what the book of the Acts is like. The snapshot that you get at the beginning is quite different from the snapshot you get at the end because there's been development and there's been growth and it's not exactly the same, although it's the same thing. So it's the church, but the church looks a bit different as it's grown in maturity and changed in its development. So what you get, for instance, in chapter 2, in the day of Pentecost, when you've got the, um, the speaking in tongues and you've got all of this sort of thing going on uh, in these early days of the church, is quite different from what you get at the end of the book of Acts, when time has passed, the church has grown and development has taken place. It's an ever-changing and ever-growing story. And it's all about this in verse 1. It's all about what Jesus began both to do and to teach. Now, it's a good point to notice this, that the work of the Lord Jesus did not end when he left earth. So when you think about the finished work of the Lord Jesus, that expression really refers to his redemptive work. That is, his work of coming, going to the cross, paying the price of sin, rising again and ascending back to heaven. And that's what we refer to when we speak about the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was paying the price for our sin so that we could be saved. So we have some of the language referring to that. Things like this. John 17 verse 4. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. It's the Lord Jesus. He's praying to the Father and he says, anticipating the cross, I finished the work that I was sent to do. You think about him on the cross when he says that expression, it is finished. What's that referring to? Well, he's referring to that redemptive work. But the work of the Lord Jesus Christ goes beyond his redemptive work. So when he ascended, went back to heaven, his work continues on earth even today. So Luke says this, I, read, I wrote to you, Theophilus, about the days really when the Lord Jesus was here and when he was doing things and when he was teaching things. But that's not the end of the story. The story continues. And although he's absent physically, his work continues through us here on earth, through his apostles in particular. And you get this, this expression, the body of Christ. And you've got this idea that those who belong to him here upon earth are in fact the vehicle, the means by which his work is done. Simple things. You know, if someone is going to receive something from the Lord Jesus Christ, it's us that are going to give it to them. If, some, if the words of Christ have to be communicated, they're going to be communicated out of our mouth. If something is going to be done and um, the, the gospel or the love of God is going to be taken somewhere, it's got to be taken by us. We are the body of Christ. We are the vehicle through which the work of the Lord Jesus is now done upon earth, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you see this, this is the story of the book of the Acts. So what sorts of things did he begin to do and to teach? Well, again, this is just really the story of the gospel. So... For example, the Lord Jesus, his miracles of compassion. So these are the things he began to do. So his kindness, his compassion, his sinless life that he lived here upon earth and the witness of it to people round about. 
The fact that he spoke for God and represented God to a dark world as the light of the world. He said this, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But he's not the light of the world now because he's not in the world, he's gone. But still this world needs light and therefore we are the ones who are salt and light. You see, what he began to do and to teach is to be continued by us here upon earth. So sometimes people say, well, what is my reason? What is my mission? What is the the kind of core um, activities I should be involved in and the kind of purpose of life? Well, you look at the life of the Lord Jesus and it's a continuation of that, representing God here upon earth. The things that he began to teach, he talked about the character of God, the law of God, repentance, faith. He spoke about the reality of eternity. He spoke about heaven. He spoke about hell. He spoke about all these things. And his teaching is not to stop because he's gone, it's to continue in his physical absence. And by the way, the religious people of his day hated him for what he did and taught. He wasn't hated until he was the age of 30. Because he kind of merged and never did anything miraculous before then here upon earth. And his teaching, well, we don't read any record of it, but he certainly never taught anything that revealed himself to be who he essentially was. And folk were fine with that. He was just like everybody else apart from sin. But when he stood out from that and when he began to speak and when he began to do, then the hostility came. And that's the same with us. The Apostle Paul speaks of his life in this same way. Listen to him in Romans 15, verses 18 to 19. He says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has worked through me to win obedience from the Gentiles by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, as I reflect upon my life, I've got nothing to tell you about in my life. Other than this, what Christ did through me, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he says that includes the words I said and the things that I did. And he's really taking what Luke says here and says my life has been a continuation of that, the things that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So it's a simple thing. To what extent in my life are the words and works of Christ manifested? That's the challenge of the verse. So we come to verse 2 and 3, and what we discover is this, that um, Luke says, the Lord Jesus began to do and to teach things until he was taken, until the day in which he was taken up. And that is the ascension that is being referred to. And so you remember that the Lord Jesus led his disciples out as far as Bethany, and while he was speaking to them, he physically ascended. Now, I don't know what that looked like, but, I mean, he literally must have taken off because he was visible to them as he ascended. And it must have been a a glorious and yet kind of fearful thing for the disciples to witness because he's going, he's gone. And they're left standing there. And it says this, that until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles to whom he had chosen. To me, he also showed himself alive and so forth. Now, this is the only section in your Bible where we have the 40-day period referred to. 
Here that we learn it was 40 days from the time that the Lord Jesus rose and the time that he was with his disciples before he ascended. And before the resurrection and the ascension was precisely 40 days. Now, what did he do in these 40 days? Two things, according to this text. Number one, he proved he was alive. And number two, he prepared his disciples for the future. So first of all, that 40-day period was significant. In fact, you could have a whole sermon on 40-day periods in the Bible. So here are some of them. The rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights before Noah's flood, Genesis 7. Moses spends 40 days in God's presence on Mount Sinai, Exodus 21. And again, I suppose if this was camp, you'd have a competition to see who could tell me the next one. Twelve spies spent 40 days exploring the land of Canaan, Numbers chapter 13. A generation wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, Numbers 14. Jonah warned Nineveh of coming judgment in 40 days. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness 40 days. And here he appeared to the disciples for 40 days after his resurrection. There's a significance to a 40-day period in the scriptures. One writer said this. 40 is, I was going to say it's the new 30, but 40 is almost always associated with, according to this writer, a new development in the history of God's actions amongst humanity, especially of salvation. For example, the flood, redemption from Egypt, Elijah and the prophetic era, the advent of Christ, the birth of the church. You might say it this way, when you see the number 40, pay attention, because it usually means God is about to do something significant. So whenever you come across 40, it is almost like a warning sign, something big's about to happen in the Bible. And that's exactly what happens here. And during that 40-day period, the Lord Jesus did things. He prepares his own for his absence. So he restores Peter. You remember Peter had sinned and fallen, and he's restored by the Lord Jesus. You remember he encourages Mary as she weeps. And these are just, if you like, a kind of, they are a summary of the actions of the Lord Jesus By the Holy Spirit in his absence, this is the sort of thing that he does to his people. It's a kind of microcosm. So he restores Peter who falls. He encourages Mary who weeps. He he welcomes and assures Thomas who doubts. He instructs the two disciples on the way to Emmaus who are fearful. He meets and he eats and he fellowships with disciples who are discouraged. He even cooks breakfast for the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. So you could go on. And if you think of all the things he does in that 40-day period, they are things that should be happening amongst us as his people in his absence. And he demonstrates not only this, but he also demonstrates that he's alive. Now, Jesus Christ is alive. It's the great message of hope in the gospel. It's what we've got to say to the world. Without this, we have nothing to say. Without this, our lives are pointless and our lives are futile. And in fact, we are living a substandard quality of life to everyone round about if Jesus is not alive. The fact that he is alive transforms everything. 
The fact that he is alive and he is resurrected and he has proved this is essential to the gospel and to the Christian experience here upon earth. It's core. And it says here that he, in verse number three, he showed himself alive after his passion by this, by many infallible proofs. Now, that expression, infallible proofs, is a legal expression. It's unassailable evidence. In the court of law, this would refer to an argument that is so overwhelming that it would be folly to rebut it. It is just overwhelmingly clear that it is true. The Lord Jesus leaves no room for argument, no room for debate, no wriggle room, no chink, if you like, of light in this argument. It is overwhelmingly established evidentially that he is alive. Now, you can read a lot of books that actually uh, put this down in the form of an argument. It's quite interesting that um, the evidence of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus on a legal basis is comprehensive, is overwhelming. And here we have these infallible proofs, a testimony that stands up under legal scrutiny. Jesus Christ is alive. Now notice this. First of all, they saw the Lord Jesus. So it says, to whom also he showed himself alive, being seen of them 40 days. It's the first thing. They saw the Lord Jesus and he was alive. Now that Greek word to see is the word ophthalmia. I think that's how you say it. It's where we get ophthalmology. Try saying that on a Friday night. It's not easy. The study of eyes and the treatments of eye, the treatment of eye diseases. And optics comes from, that's an easy word to say. So the idea is just this, that he was subject to their visual scrutiny. They saw him. Not as a kind of passing glance. They saw them. They stared at him. They fixed their gaze on them. And the evidence of their eyes was this. He's alive. He's absolutely alive. They could testify that they had seen him. Secondly, they heard him. He talked to them, it says this, in verse number three. After his passion, by many infallible proofs, number one, being seen of them 40 days. Number two, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So he talks to them. So he sees, they see him and they hear him. And he's speaking about the kingdom of God. Thirdly, they ate with him. So it says that, um, that they were with him. And in Luke 24, actually, you need to get this. And I said that it kind of comes together. And he appeared and they were frightened and thought they saw a ghost or something like that. But he invites them to examine his wounds in Luke 24 to see that he was real. And he, he says to them, do you have anything to eat? And they give him a piece of fish and he took it and ate in their presence. So they see him, they hear him, they eat with him. And he speaks to them about the kingdom of God. It's the greatest priority. The kingdom of God is a massive subject and I'm not going to deal with it here but this kingdom of God is something that we are part of. It is any sphere here upon earth or anywhere where the lordship of Christ is acknowledged. 
And that's true of us in this room. We acknowledge the sovereign lordship of Christ as members of the church, which is part of the kingdom. We've been translated in the kingdom of his, into the kingdom of his dear son. The kingdom is the big idea. The church is the smaller idea. And the church is part of that overarching entity called the kingdom. The kingdom has different aspects to it, but it is all true that every single aspect of the kingdom is characterised by this subjection to his authority and his sovereign lordship. Now we know all about kings and queens today in our nation. And so our queen has died, she's passed, and there is a king, King Charles III, and you think about a queen and a king, and we understand this, certainly within our system, that they are sovereign. And we acknowledge that sovereignty as a nation. The sovereign authority of the Lord Jesus is not acknowledged by everyone, but is acknowledged by us. And so this is preached, the kingdom of God. Now notice in verse number four, it says this. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. Here's a little point, but wait for the promise of the Father. Over and over again in the Bible, waiting is part of someone's relationship with God. Again and again and again. Patience and waiting. Let me give you some scriptures. Psalm 27 verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Psalm 37. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Proverbs 20 verse 22. Do not say I will pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. And perhaps the best known one is in Isaiah 40 verse 31. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Wait. It's a consistent instruction for the people of God of all generations. Wait. He tells them to wait in Jerusalem. And waiting is a particularly difficult thing, I think, to do as Christians. Most of us lack patience and find waiting hard. We either want to do, or we want to go, or we, want, we just find it hard to wait in his time. Well, they had to wait. You can imagine that the last thing they wanted to do was wait. What have they just been hearing about? The kingdom of God. I suppose the disciples would be saying this, well, what do you want us to do now? Um, what's next? I mean, if they've witnessed the three-year ministry of the Lord Jesus, they've witnessed his sacrificial death, so that down, that kind of, from up here to down there in their experience, and then he's, he's raised from the dead, and all of a sudden there's hope again, and, uh, and then he's appeared to them for 40 days. He's been teaching them, he's been eating with them, they've been seeing him, and he's been speaking all about this kingdom. And I, if I was there, I'd be like, like, when do we get started? When do we see this? When, does th when do things begin to happen in, in a very dramatic fashion? And instead of that, they're told, just don't do anything yet. Don't go anywhere. Go back to Jerusalem. 
and wait until the Holy Spirit comes. It's a kind of, it's a kind of damp squib in that sense. Just go and wait. Go back to your lives and wait. One writer said, when God wants his people to reach the world, as he's going to say shortly, his first step is to tell his people to slow down and wait. When the time comes, he'll give them the signal to move. Until then, go home and wait on the Lord. Wait in his time. And why did they have to wait? They had to wait for God had already promised them which was found in verse 5. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So, I'm not going to describe this because this is chapter 2 of Acts. Lots of Christians disagree about this idea of the baptism of the Spirit. It's a very significant truth in the Bible. It impacts us all. So many Christians um, will speak about them waiting or being baptised in the Spirit or waiting the, the Spirit of God to come upon their lives or a second blessing and this kind of thing. But actually, this is referred to here. This is an experience that these people historically were about to experience and they were going to experience it in a historical context, in a geographical location, and it was going to be done to them. It's going to actually happen to them. And we get the description of what this is in Acts chapter 2, where you can see it unfolding and happening in the day of Pentecost. So without going into chapter 2, just referring to it, that's the events that's referred to. That's what they had to wait on. It did happen, and they did wait. But here the instruction is, listen, John baptizes with water, but you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You need to go back to Jerusalem and wait until this great event happens. That's exactly what they did. But before that happened, look at verse 6. They've got a question. The question is this. I think it's quite a fair question. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's the question. Verse number six. Will they this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? I think it's a fair question. They've been listening to the teaching of the Lord about the kingdom. And they're really just saying this, is it now? Is this it? Is Israel going to to be brought to prominence amongst the nations on earth. All these Old Testament promises about the kingdom, are they about to be fulfilled? Are we just on the cusp of this most amazing time? I think it's a fair question. And they had good reason. For not only had he spoken to them about the kingdom of God, but the outpouring of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament is connected to the establishment of the kingdom as well. Ezekiel 39, Joel chapter 2, Zechariah chapter 12. The Spirit poured out as something that happens at the establishment of this kingdom. So I think they make a connection. I think it's a fair question. The Lord Jesus answers the question in this way. In verse 7, he says unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Now, the times and the seasons. If you 
were to go into 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you find that expression again. So you have an assembly in Thessalonica years later that are talking about the times and the seasons. And the Apostle Paul says to them, but of the times and the seasons you have no need that I write unto you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. And when many you know, are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes as childbirth to a woman, and they shall not escape. That's First Thessalonians chapter 5. There's an echo of the question that's raised by the disciples here in Acts chapter 1. And it's about the same thing. God's prophetic program, take out the rapture of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians is this idea, you've got an assembly in Thessalonica that is distressed about future events and the impact upon them. Some were worried about friends or family who had died as Christians. Would they be disadvantaged at the establishment of the kingdom here upon earth? When the Lord will return again to them, are these Christians going to be disadvantaged? And there's a pastoral aspect to the uh, epistle of 1 Thessalonians. He says, wherefore comfort one another with those words at the end of chapter 4. And the, the instruction is, no, they're not going to be disadvantaged. In fact, they're going to have the advantage because the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then he comes to chapter 5. And he doesn't just speak about the, the rapture. Take that out. He speaks about times and seasons. And he speaks about the day of the Lord. So you understand this, that God's prophetic program upon earth happens at different times. That word time comes from the word chronology and has the idea of calendar time, history time. So we mark that time by our calendar and by our clock. But seasons is a different word, and that is the idea of the character of periods of time. So we would say it's harvest time. That just means it's the season of the year when harvest takes place. And there is this idea of time chronologically and time seasonally, if you like, the character of those times. And when you think about God's prophetic program, program you've got both. You've got you have the Daniel 70-week revelation that we studied in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, and you have the unfolding of the times. There are actually dates, there are days, there are months, there are years described in the unfolding of God's prophetic calendar. But also when you go to these prophetic scriptures, you have the character of what's happening in those times revealed to us as well. Now Paul says to the Thessalonians, you don't need to be taught about this because the Old Testament actually revealed all of this in relation to the coming of Christ in the future, what we call the second coming, the coming of Christ to earth to establish his kingdom. So his initial advent's taking place at Bethlehem. The rapture, he's not coming to the earth, he's coming to the sky. And the second coming to earth of Christ is the manifestation, is the establishment of his kingdom upon earth. We're looking forward to that. Even as part of the church, we're part of the kingdom. We are going to come with Christ when he establishes that kingdom on earth. We'll be raptured to the glory and then we'll return in triumph with him. So he's speaking about this big prophetic thing. He says, Paul says to Thessalonians, the day of the Lord, you know all about it. 
That after the rapture takes place, people on earth will just go about their business as if nothing's happened. You know, you get these films, these sort of films where planes are crashing because a Christian was piloting the plane, so planes are going down and bus you know, buses are, are going into buildings because there's a bus driver who's a Christian and the rapture, you know, God's a God of order. None of that will happen because the world is just going to go on as if nothing's happened when we go. You say, well, how can that be? I don't know how it can be, but people, it says, will just marry and be given in marriage, they will trade, they'll go about their business, business just as it was in the days of Noah, it says. And impending judgment is coming and they're oblivious to it. And it says it will come like a thief in the night. Now that's not to do at the time, that's to do with the character of his coming. A thief doesn't advertise his coming in advance and say, you know, send your text and say, two nights on Tuesday I'm going to be breaking into your house and stealing stuff. They, they creep in, usually at night, because that's, I don't know why usually at night, maybe not usually at night, but anyway. The thief comes at night and it's, it's unannounced in advance. And it's sudden. And it's distressing. That's what's going to happen when we are gone. People just go about their business your colleagues won't miss you. Satan will have his deception ongoing. And then all of a sudden, it's going to happen. The times and the seasons. Now, back to Acts 1. That's what they were talking about. And the Lord Jesus said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons. You're not getting that information. We don't have that information. We don't know when Christ is coming in rapture. We also don't know the date he's coming in his second coming. We don't know. When he comes, we know what's going to happen thereafter in terms of times and seasons. Because it's revealed to us. But we don't know the date it's all going to happen. That, according to the Lord Jesus, the Father hath put in his own power. He alone knows that. We don't. So when you read about things like, well, the world's shaping up and, you know, things are moving toward, generation after generation after generation have said that sort of thing. Looked and said, you know, it, it looks like tribulation time isn't close. And it may well be close, but we simply don't know. It could be tomorrow. It could be years away. We don't know. The disciples were told basically this. You should worry less about when the kingdom is coming. You should worry less about all these prophetic things. And what you need to do is just this. You need to take care of business now. So he says in verse 8, But ye shall receive power. So don't be fixating about times and seasons and prophecies and worrying all about that kind of stuff. That's not in your power. That's, you've not got that information and you've got no control over it anyway. But here's something that has got to do with you. Here's something that does actually impact you. You're going to receive power. And the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you've got work to do before he comes. So he says it. Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the kind of, you throw a stone into a pond and the ripples go out. That's the gospel. It's as if the Lord Jesus throws the gospel like a stone into a pond and it's going to ripple out into the uttermost parts of the earth. 
And by the way, that's a description of the book of Acts. You can divide up the book of Acts using that verse. So you'll see the gospel as it is in Jerusalem, then you'll see it as it is in Judea, then you'll see it going out into Samaria, then you see it going out into the uttermost parts of the earth as you go through the book of Acts. That's what happens. The Spirit of God empowers the disciples. The Spirit-filled disciples witness about the Lord Jesus Christ because the gospel is all about the work of the Holy Spirit. We think it's all about our work. It's actually the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why we pray in relation to the gospel. It's not just to be thankful for what the Lord's enabled us to do. It's rather we intercede, we pray for the work of the Spirit of God to do what we cannot do. And actually to open up opportunities to encourage us, to enable us, to empower us, but actually to do the work of convicting and of salvation, born of the Spirit, born from above. The Spirit of God is vital to the work of the gospel. In fact, without his Spirit, the gospel cannot. The gospel cannot spread and simply does not work. I read this, that sometimes um, imposing things from outside human nature is clearly demonstrated to be folly rather than it coming from within. The Spirit of God works within. In 1919, it's called the Grand Experiment in the States. In 1919, Congress ratified what was the 18th Amendment to their Constitution. It was prohibition. It prohibited the sale and distribution of alcohol in the United States. And the people who supported that amendment, including lots of Christians, meant well. They believed that by outlawing alcohol, they could improve society. And it was called the Grand Experiment. It didn't work. And largely because Americans, by the millions, flouted the law and they simply worked out how to get around it by lots of criminality. And in 1933, the 21st Amendment to their Constitution repealed the 18th Amendment and the grand experiment was deemed to be over and a failure. And it was seen that no law can actually change human nature. If people want to drink, all the laws in the world is not going to stop them from drinking. But then if you take that to us as well, and you take it to sin and all about sin, that's what the Bible teaches us. Law in the Bible demonstrates our sin, but has no answer to it. It cannot provide the solution. But the gospel does because the Spirit of God doesn't begin his work on the outside, but begins his work on the inside. And we are transformed from the inside out. And that's a work of the Spirit. And so the Lord Jesus, his disciples were inquisitive. He speaks to them in verse number 9. He's taken up and he's received out of their sight and they're given their marching orders. Ye men of Galilee, what are you doing standing, gazing up into the sky? This same Jesus who went like this, one day is going to come back like this. And by the way, he's not only going to come back like that, he's going to come back to that very place. And the place from which he ascended is the place to which he will descend. 
the place really there in Israel, in Jerusalem, where his feet left the earth in the coming day, is where his feet again will touch the earth. He's coming back in like manner, just as he went. Which means this, that we not only look forward to the rapture, we look beyond the rapture and look forward to the manifestation and the second coming of the Lord Jesus to earth. So the disciples are given their marching orders. And by the way, they also apply to us. It's the same marching orders. Why stand around gazing into space? You know that way that sometimes your parents used to tell you to stop in a dwam? You know, you're standing there in a dwam, you're just gazing around and you've been told to do something, you're standing gazing. And that's what the disciples were. They're literally standing, I don't know if their mouths are open, but they're standing there staring up. So let stop staring up into space. You're here upon earth, here are your marching orders. Get to it, get busy. There's a gospel to be spread, and it's not going to spread itself. It requires us to spread it, empowered by the Spirit of God. And I think as we go through the book of Acts, we will find this, that particularly the beginning of the book of Acts, there is tremendous foundational truths about our Christian lives and also our community life as Christian in what we call the local church and found in these early chapters. So let's just pray and we'll give thanks to the Lord for the ministry and also for this food.